Section 10 of Gafantiev by Charles Francois Tipchenia de la Roche. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 The Thermometers. As I was attentively examining a leaf of the fantastical tree, on which I perceived grand projects and insufficient means, I saw another so small and curled as to be almost invisible fly off a neighbouring bough and suddenly disappear at the same instant i felt a slight pricking in my forehead a sort of restlessness in my head which i cannot describe and which has not left me ever since certainly this leaf has entered my brain and is labouring to unfold itself some new invention will result from it one time or other i even begin to suspect of what kind and i imagine it will be a mechanical affair if i am not mistaken it is this the different tempers the different talents the different dispositions depend upon the heat and motion more or less considerable of the animal spirits this is a settled point among the physicians i shall not appeal from their judgment the question would be to find a mechanical instrument to discover in each person the degree of heat and motion of this animal liquid in order to discern what any one is fit for and to employ him accordingly this is what i am seeking and what the leaf which is busy in my brain when unfolded will not fail to show me i will compose a quintessence analogous to the animal liquid and instead of spirits of wine i will fill thermometers with it on the inside of the tube in the room of the different degrees of the temperature of the air there shall be an enumeration of the objects about which men are usually employed instead of cold temperate hot and very hot etc shall be put good for history good for physic good for poetry good for the gown good for the sword good for the mitre good for the baton good for bedlam etc when a person shall put his hand upon the file the liquor will be condensed or dilated and rising or falling in the tube will show what the person is good for i will present thermometers to sovereigns that they may choose generals ministers counsellors and especially favourites who love them enough to tell them the truth i will give to some bishops to fill their benefices and dignities for i observe and those who are appointed to watch should themselves be watched i will give some to fathers that their children may be wisely disposed of we shall not see them gird with a sword or a son whom they ought to educate to the altar or bury in a cloister a daughter who would have been the delight of a husband and the happiness of a family i will give some to the great that they may discern those who deserve their protection they will grant it no more to a base flatterer to a supple intriguer to an ostentatious mean person who has pretensions but to true merit which is seldom seen by them and never with all its advantages i will give some to those tender-hearted virtuous girls made to enliven the small number of our pleasures and to allay the multitude of our troubles with my thermometers they will choose husbands worthy of their affection if any such there be and they will not see themselves given up to men born for the plague of their sex those men without morals who marry for life 
and espouse only for six months. In fine, I will give some to particular persons, that each may examine himself and act accordingly, for I observe that generally every one does what he should not do. I see none but what are misplaced. I am now soliciting for a pension, to defray the vast expense that I must evidently be at in making thermometers, even though I should give them only to such as most want them. It is true that reflection might serve instead of my liquid and glass tubes, but reflections are known to be very rare. For example, it is now at Babylon as on the real stage. All is action, nothing is thought, and my thermometers may become a necessary piece of furniture. CHAPTER Sixteen: THE LENTILS The sap which circulates in the fantastical tree, said the prefect, is exhausted in bearing and nourishing leaves. Let it be considered how many plans, views, projects come into men's heads. The prodigious quality of leaves that this tree must furnish will be astonishing, and it will be no longer wondered that this whole substance is wasted in their production. Meanwhile, the sap, passing into the philosophical branch, makes more progress there than anywhere else. It produces blossoms, and sometimes fruit. These blossoms are of a singular form and color, that is to say, admirable to some eyes, and very odd to others. Their odor is very penetrating. Few love it, many cannot bear it. To like it requires a strong head, and a brain organized on purpose. These same blossoms are extremely delicate. The least change of the air disorders their economy. They generally fade without leaving any fruit. In fine, the fruit is very late, and seldom comes to perfect maturity. The shell is almost round, divided within two little cells, and ended up the top in a crown. The little cells of the philosophical fruit are full of seeds, transparent as crystal, round and flattened like a lentil, but infinitely smaller. When the fruit is ripe, it bursts and the cells open. The seeds come out. But as they are very light, they are suspended in the air, and the wind blows them every way over the surface of the earth. One thing would astonish thee if thou wast not a little versed in chemistry and optics, and that is, these philosophical grains have a particular analogy to the eye. They will not stick to any other substance, but as soon as they come within the reach of certain eyes, they never fail to fasten on them, and that just before the sight of the eye. As they are perfectly transparent, they cannot be perceived, but they are discovered by their effects. He that has a seed of this kind before his eyes sees things as they are, and he cannot be imposed upon by chimeras. What used to appear to him great is prodigiously lessened, and what appeared to him little is magnified in the same proportion, so that to his eyes everything is upon a level or nearly so. In general, men appear to him very little, and those lords over others, whom he beheld before as colossuses, seem to him so little above the rest that he hardly perceives the difference. He sees the extent of human knowledge, and he finds it so near to ignorance that he does not conceive how learning can breed vanity or ignorance cause shame. 
he sees without disguise the phantom of immortality the idol of the great and the jest of the wise he sees the celebrated names penetrate a little more or less into futurity and then stop like the rest and sink into eternal oblivion he sees what is low in the most sublime the dark part of what casts the most lustre the weak side in what appears the strongest and his imagination presents to him nothing dazzling but wherein his reason discovers all the defects he sees the earth as a point in the boundless space a series of ages as an instant in eternal duration and the chain of human actions as the traces of a cloud of flies in the aerial planes in fine he respects virtue and as to the rest whatever he perceives all around him even to the most minute things seems to him all alike he esteems nothing he despises nothing he prefers nothing and accommodates himself to everything such a man cannot be conceived to be susceptible to all those little sallies of joy which affect others but then he is screened from all those little mortifications which trouble them so much and in my opinion he is a gainer chapter seventeen the subterraneous road i have one more thing said the prefect to show thee prepare thy eyes and thy ears and be frightened at nothing the rivulet by the side of which we walk to the fantastical tree receives several streams as it flows along and as if it left with regret so beautiful a residence after forming a thousand serpentine windings in the meadow it glides gently towards its mouth in that place a hole formed by an opening of the earth receives and transmits it through subterraneous channels we came to the place where it was broadest the bottom was of smooth gravel and the water not above an inch deep the prefect went in and i followed him i had gone but a few paces when the bottom gave way i sunk but it was only to my waist and i remained in that posture without being able to get to one side or the other fear nothing says the prefect calmly enjoy the last spectacle i have reserved for thee i then gave myself up to the efforts of the waters which carried me away and i soon entered into the subterraneous cavities where they were lost at a little distance the rivulet flowed into another and soon after both ran into a river i was carried from stream to stream i crossed glyphs lakes and seas as long as a faint light permitted i contemplated the internal frame of the earth it is a labyrinth of immense caverns deep grottoes irregular crevices which have a communication with one another the waters that flow in these subterranean places spread themselves sometimes into vast basins and seem to stagnate sometimes they run with a rapid stream through narrow straits and dash against the rocks with such impetuosity as to produce the phosphorus and flashes of lightning very often they fall from the top of the vaults with a dreadful noise the dazzled eye sees as it imagines the foundations of the earth shake one would think that the whole was turned upside down and falling into chaos when the glimmering light which i had enjoyed some time came to fail i found myself buried in a profound darkness 
which increased the horror I had conceived at what I had seen. A hideous noise, mixed with the murmuring of the streams, with the whistling of the gulfs, with the roaring of the torrents, threw me into great perturbation of mind, and my troubled fancy formed to itself a thousand frightful images. I went on a good while in this darkness, and I know not how far I had gone when a faint light struck my eyes. It was not like that which precedes sunrising, or follows sunset, but that melancholy light which a town on fire spreads at a distance in the shade of the night. I was some time before I saw whence it came. At last I found myself close to the most terrible of all the sights. A vast opening exposed to my eyes an immense cavern, an abyss of fire. The devouring flame rapidly consumed the combustible matter with which the arched roofs and the abyss were impregnated. A thick smoke mixed with fiery sparks diffused itself to a great distance. From time to time the calcined stones fell down by pieces, and liquefied metals formed flaming streams. Sometimes whole rocks, rent from the tops of the vaults, gave passage to water, which poured down in boiling streams. The moment the water touched the calcined matters and melted minerals, it caused most shocking detonations. The concavities of the globe resounded, their foundations were shaken, and I conceived that such was the cause of those terrible earthquakes that have destroyed so many countries and swallowed up so many cities. I was soon in darkness again, for I still went on. Every moment I should have been destroyed if the prefect of Gaphanthia had not watched over me. I saw him no more, but his promise was with me, and the dangers I had escaped heartened me against those I still had to undergo. By degrees I took courage, and came away so easy as to make some reflections. Alas, said I, through a frightful desert I came into the most beautiful mansions in the world, and I am now going thence through gulfs, abysses, and volcanoes. Good and evil closely follow one another. It is thus the light of the day and darkness of the night, the frosts of the winter and the flowers of the spring, the gentle zephyrs and the raging storms, succeed one another. However, by this strange concatenation is formed the enchanting prospect of nature. Let us not doubt it. The natural world, notwithstanding its disorders, is the masterpiece of infinite wisdom. The moral world, in spite of its stains, is worthy of the admiration of the philosopher. And Babylon, with all its faults, is the chief city of the world. At last, after many days of subterraneous navigation, I once more saw the light. I came out of these terrible vaults, and the last current landed me upon a maritime coast. The serenity of the air was not ruffled with the wind. The calm sea shone with the rays of the rising sun, and like a tender wife who stretches out her arms and sweetly smiles on a beloved husband, the earth seemed to resume new life at the return of that glorious orb from whence springs all its fertility. By degrees, my troubled senses were calmed. I looked round me and found myself in my own country, six hundred furlongs northwest from Babylon, to which city I address and dedicate this narrative of my hazardous travels. End of section 10
End of Gavantia, or A View of What Has Passed, What Is Now Passing, and During the Present Century, What Will Pass in the World, by Charles Francois Tipchenia de la Roche.